Hi, this is Tony Baxter, and it's great to be a part today of the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the one-year anniversary of Skull Rock Podcast. Happy birthday to us. If this is your first time checking out the show, welcome, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. I am one of your co-hosts, Al John Go. I'm a musician, podcaster, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, pop culturist, fan, and you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm one of the birthday boys here today, <laughs> along with I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also at Sorcerer Radio. Hey. You can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Al John, uh, uh, wow, one year. We've been broadcasting for a year and we've got the following to show it, don't we? Oh my gosh. I can't even believe it's been a year, Dave. It, it's gone by so quickly, you know, launching this show in the midst of a global pandemic. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're just hitting our stride. I just love it. It's been great. <laughs> It really has been. I, I've been enjoying it. And, and and there's nothing better than getting those emails from our listeners. Uh, and, you know, some of them, I, I, I've gotten emails from people I haven't seen in, in a decade or more. People that I've, I was friends with or, you know, just have lost touch with or I worked with briefly down in Orlando yep. or California, whatever, you know. And, and it's so wonderful to be bringing on all of these fabulous guests and uh talking about all this fun stuff and it doesn't it it honestly does not feel like a year to me al john oh i know it right well i know it's our anniversary show one year anniversary but i tell you even more of a milestone it's the walt disney world resort 50th anniversary dave omg how about that for a uh, milestone uh, unbelievable. You know, Al John, I was at Walt Disney World in 1976 aye, aye, aye. when I was uh, a kid. Uh, my parents took uh, my brother and sisters and I down to Orlando uh, for a camping trip in uh, Fort Wilderness. Uh, and let me tell you, years later, I got to experience the Fort Wilderness Lodge. I prefer the lodge over yeah. camping. I really do. You know? What <laughs> yeah. can I tell you? <laughs> hey, you know what? Sometimes you just when you when you get that luxury, you you, you got to have that that really nice experience. And I agree, man. The Wilderness Lodge, absolutely amazing. Um, you know, my first trip to the resort actually happened in 1991, 92, when my okay. marching band played the Magic Music Days events there. Um, uh, my wife also did the Magic Music Days uh, event uh, in her when she was in a marching band, but um, and I loved it. You know, we were there for a land and sea cruise, so my high school went down. We marched, and I had my very first trip down there. But the thing is, is that my first 
park ever was actually Disneyland. And I have so many fond memories of that. And then to come to Walt Disney World and then to experience that. Um, and I went there in Disneyland back in back when I was back in the early 80s. So um, and then to come there like in Walt Disney World, like 10 years later, uh, when I'm a teenager, it was definitely something to behold. Um, totally just wowed. And I can't wait to save up and bring the entire family, the two kids and Kristen just hop into a car and just, just make the road trip down for uh, sometime in the 50th just to celebrate and take in everything. They've really done a great job promoting it, Dave. I mean, it's just off the chain what I'm seeing. Yeah. I, and, and rightfully so. I mean, you know, that park, that whole property down there, because you can't just say park because that sounds like you're talking about one park. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different parks down there on that property There, you could go down there for several weeks and uh, and just not really repeat yourself. You know, there's so much to do. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait. And one of these days, Dave, we're going to have to go down to Walt Disney World and, and just have a go at it and meet some of our great listeners from around the world and uh, do a meetup at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. I think we, I think we have to plan on that into the future. As our audience grows, we're going to maybe do some remote uh, broadcast shows Absolutely. from different areas. Well, but, you yeah. know, I got to tell you, we, yeah. we've got a, fa- a fabulous uh, uh, panel lined up for a discussion today. Uh, and I know, by the way, last week we had part one of the Bob Kurtz uh, interview and I inadvertently said we were going to have part two this week. We're actually Actually going to put that up next week because this was our one year anniversary for the Skull Rock podcast and the 50th anniversary for Walt Disney World. And we have a panel discussion about Walt Disney World. Wow. With yeah. with Alan Coates, who is considered a uh, second generation Imagineer uh, because his father, Claude Coates, was first generation Imagineer. And then we have Chris Merritt and Ethan Reed, which are considered third generation Imagineers. <laughs> so I, I can't wait to get to that. But before we do, we have the news. Oh. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Down, 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 down. I got to tell you, Al John, uh, the movie that we've talked about on and off over the last year, the new uh, No Time to Die, the James Bond movie, is going to open on uh, October 8th, next weekend. Yeah. And I, I have to say, it's already opened in some territories around the world. And this weekend, it's done an incredible $119 million at the box office. I would say the box office is coming back pretty quickly here, you yeah. know, and I, I can't wait to see this movie. They've been hungry for Bond and they've got Bond and uh, there's no time to die, right? I mean, this is it for Daniel Craig. They want to see how this uh, he's going to uh, give the this particular uh, character swan song. Well, I mean... The character will live on, but Daniel Craig as the character is no more. So, yeah, you know, it's it, it's going to be it, it, it's hard. You know, anytime they change the Bond actor out, it, it's always a transition. It's always hard, you know, because the you know Daniel Craig has left the big big shoes to fill. So it's going to be interesting to see who the next Bond is. 
Yes, definitely, for sure. But uh, Daniel Craig, what an amazing actor. What an amazing group of films he did. I'm looking forward to seeing this one myself. And uh, glad to see that the the box office, the movie business, is back. And speaking who else is back, Dave, it seems like Scarlett Johansson is back with Disney. And they settled this lawsuit with this really back-and-forth PR battle with CAA. Uh, that's uh, Scarlett Johansson's uh, representative uh, firm, um, talent agency. But it looks like they've settled now. And the dust is, settled, uh, the dust is settling. And it uh, says, quote, I'm happy to have resolved our differences with Disney Slated Johansson. I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done together over the years and have greatly enjoyed my creative relationship with the team. I look forward to continuing our collaboration in years to come yeah you know this should never have gone public and i think this gave disney a black eye uh you know they shot themselves in the foot with this one because it should never have gotten to the point where it went public uh and ultimately i think before this announcement uh you know bob chapek said the rest of the movie slate was all going out to the theaters for the rest of the year Uh, So that that says to me that there were definitely some issues that could have bubbled up similar to the Scarlett Johansson um, uh, lawsuit. So, you know, honestly, this should have all been done behind closed doors. And I I just uh, shake my head and I'm glad they settled it, you know, Uh, but it should have been done privately. Yeah, you can only imagine Emma Stone's lawyers knocking on the door of Bob Chapek going, we're next. You better watch out. But but at least least she's already signed to do the second Cruella movie. Right. And Scarlett Johansson's going to be in another Disney film as well, looking at doing something. um, uh, What was that? She's doing the Tower of Terror. So there you oh, go. That's gonna She's going to be doing that that film. Oh, yeah. She's uh, slated to do that. Hey, um, yeah. and speaking of Disney, they're making moves. Of course, we are talking about the Walt Disney World Resort celebrating its 50th anniversary as of October 1st, just a couple days ago. The Everybody's uh, just running around crazy about uh, the anniversary. And they have this brand new Hey Disney powered by Amazon Alexa uh assistant that's going to be in every one of those resort rooms. I've seen this myself. And I'm going to buy one. I cannot wait to have this, Dave. Am I crazy here? No, not at all. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about this, though. All right. So they're bringing the world of Disney directly to Echo devices with the Hey Disney app, says Dave Limp, the senior vice president of Amazon devices and services. By combining the strength of Alexa's technology with Disney's unmatched storytelling and expertise, we're creating the next generation of immersive experiences to make guest vacations more memorable by giving our customers a way to make their homes into more magical, um, more magical too. So everyone there at the resort is going to have this Hey Disney kind of visual assistant. It looks kind of like a little alarm clock, but it's a you know full computer screen, and you can use Hey Disney as a wake word, like much like you would use the Alexa word uh, on the Amazon uh, technology. You can have uh, the Echo tell you about different times, um, different guides around the park. You can have Mickey and friends tell jokes or give you ring uh, wake-up calls and different things like that. So just a really fun way to bring more of that Disney magic in and refresh the technology that uh, that makes the guest experience that much better, in my opinion. But I, I think this is going to be a really big home run for everybody. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think so too. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how it takes off. Yeah. You know what I'm, uh, what I'm waiting for though, is I'm waiting for them to, to start giving uh, uh, people the choice of a character voice. I'm sure that's um, on the horizon because, you yeah. know, you can do that right now with, you know, the Waze app and, you know, you could do that with your uh, iPhone or Amazon. Now you can call it and have different voice assistants. So I'm yeah. sure it's on the horizon. Um, you know, Disney's going to go in, all in on this, and um, I can't wait to have one myself to have to replace my Google. So that'll be yeah. really fun because I got I've got the the Amazon and, and the Google, and I think I'm just going to get rid of the Google. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, with Scarlett Johansson, I had to kind of transition, you know, to the Disney thing. But uh, you know, we talked about this Avengers situation, and you sent me this note about how the original authors and creators and artists uh, for some of these Marvel characters might be settling or getting, you know, trying to get some of their rights back to uh, cash in on Disney success with the Marvel cinematic universe. Um, Can you uh, clue us in a little bit about what this is about? You know, this is just one of those situations where uh, it it gets a little fuzzy with the uh, copyright laws uh, and ownership. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, what's going on with Disney Marvel uh, is they're going to face off in court against the estate uh, of uh, comic book legend Jack Kirby over whether his heirs can terminate a copyright grant thus reclaim the rights to characters including Spider-Man, the X-Men, uh, the Incredible Hulk, and Mighty Thor. Uh, and uh, <laughs> this, this, you know, I, I have to tell you, uh, this is, uh, you know, one of those situations where it's not just cut and dry, you know. Uh, you know, these artists like Kirby, uh, they contributed as illustrators between 1958, 1963 with works made for hire is, you know, but this is, you know, uh, the heirs, you know, Disney's claiming the heirs had no standing to terminate the grant of copyright, uh, but the Kirby estate, um, uh, essentially has taken the dispute up to the Supreme Court. So, the, you know, this is all about, um, you know, ownership of uh, the copyright to some of these characters. And and this kind of dovetails into this next story we have, Al John, mm-hmm. which has to do with the uh, creator, or the, the uh, Victor Miller is reclaiming the domestic rights to the Friday the 13th, um, uh, franchise from the producers. And this is, uh, you know, Victor Miller was the screenwriter uh, for Friday the 13th. And he just won uh, in the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, affirmed a win for him in the copyright termination battle. So, so you know, it's going to be kind of interesting if this screenwriter, Victor Miller, takes back his Friday the 13th uh, rights, his copyright, uh, at least domestically. Um, And he's going to be in for a payday of uh, having part ownership uh, to this uh, franchise. So a lot lot of this is going to be bubbling around in the entertainment business for many years to come, I have to say. It is something to watch for sure. And it's not just, um, you know, the king of comics, Jack Kirby, who co-created a lot of this with Stan Lee, but Steve Ditko too, just, uh, sure. you know, um, 
And we'll just have to see because I, I know that uh, when you're doing stuff for hire, it, it it gets to be really dicey, especially down the road when the company's made a lot, a lot of money um, from your characters. Yeah, and, and also the copyright laws have changed through the years and uh, there there's all kinds of factors being put into play. But, you know, you got to realize, you know, the guys that created some of these incredible properties uh, some of them have gotten screwed, uh, screwed over. Yeah. Uh, it, they really have, you know, and again, this is a situation where, you know, cooler heads hopefully will prevail and people can go behind closed doors and work out an agreement that, uh, doesn't, uh, allow this stuff to be messy and, and get out into the public. Yep. They did do that with Kirby, but now the time is to pay the piper once again. So there you go. Yeah, there well, you go. Um, in the column of regrets, uh, it is unfortunate that once again, another talent uh, has uh, gone to pass. Uh, Tommy Kirk, young Disney actor and old yeller, an absolute, you know, tearjerker, but a, a classic. Um, and who's also in the Shaggy Dog. He dies at the age of 79, Dave. And yeah. yeah, I mean, he also appeared with um, in Flubber. Um, he was also in Merlin Jones comedies as well. Um, but yeah, he started, he started with Fred McMurray and quite a number of Disney pictures. Absolutely. And maybe you'll know him too as Joe Hardy in a pair of Hardy boys TV serials, which I remember absolutely loved the Hardy boys growing up as well. It was also an offshoots of the Mickey mouse club that aired, uh, from 56 and 57. But, uh, once again, you know, another great talent and a lot of it played a, an important role in a lot of us growing up as well. So, uh, Mr. Tommy Kirk, you will be missed. Absolutely. All right, Dave. And now we have an absolute crazy, crazy panel of some of your friends joining us for this Walt Disney World 50th anniversary uh, podcast. What do we have going on here? Yep, we do. We've got uh, Alan Coates, we've got uh, Ethan Reed, and we've got Christopher Merritt joining us momentarily as they exit the green room for our studio. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Wow. I got to tell you, this is just an incredibly special show. I mean, we're dedicating this to the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World theme park uh, down in Orlando, Florida. And we've got with us not one, not two, but three bonafide Imagineers, uh, all of whom have worked on the various parks around the world and uh, touched the Florida park. We've got Alan Coates, Imagineer Alan Coates, who's the son of legendary uh, Imagineer Claude Coates. Uh, and he works side by side with his father uh, on uh, building Walt Disney World uh, 50 years ago. We've got Christopher Merritt, Imagineer Christopher Merritt, and author of Mark Davis in his own words. Uh, he's he's going to be shedding some light on Mark Davis's participation in Walt Disney World, as well as his own uh, stories. And then we've got Generation 3 uh, Imagineer, uh, Ethan Reed, uh, who has worked on a number of the parks around the world. And uh, it's just a pleasure to have all three of you here with us. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you. Thank you, Dave. 
Hey, I want to I want to kick off with uh, with Alan Coates because uh, Alan, you you were an Imagineer. You worked. You were a second generation family uh, uh, working with your father uh, on uh, the building of Walt Disney World. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with Walt Disney World and what your dad was doing with Walt Disney World? Fifty years ago. Oh, oh let me have <laughs> yikes. Uh, yes, I did work with my father, Claude Coates, but um, it was such a team effort. I wasn't shoulder to shoulder with my father. We all had responsibilities, and they shipped me off to Florida early in 1971. And I was actually working closer with Yale Gracie than, uh, than with my father in show lighting and illusions and special effects and whatever needed to be done to to bring these shows to life. So that was my uh, my job. And as soon as I arrived in Florida, Yale went into the hospital for a, a minor, some minor surgery. So he said, Alan, you're going to do the lighting for It's a Small World. So that gave me an opportunity. It was very fortunate to be able to start working immediately on this big show. It was the largest show building on site. And mm. uh, that got me going in a real big, fast hurry. So, uh, and my my father was there, but everyone was doing their own thing. I never really inter, uh, interfaced with him that much, except on one ride, and then I'll, uh, I'll we can move on. But that was Snow White's Adventures in Fantasyland, mm. which later became Snow White's Scary Adventures. <laughs> and that's a story I can tell later about what happened with that. But uh, uh, And then I also worked with my father, along with uh, Tony Baxter and Dave Burkhardt and others, on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea submarine voyage mm-hmm. in Fantasyland. So um, this is all, I'm trying to get this all coming back into my head now. So uh, real, let me real, give this some thought. Real quick, Alan, what what was the Florida park like 50 years ago? Because really it was just a magic kingdom and a couple of resorts, right? The Polynesian, the contemporary Fort Wilderness was just a campground. Am I right? You're right, but it wasn't just a campground. It had its own railroad. It was one of the major developments on the uh, shores of of, uh, Bay Lake. Uh The campground was fairly substantial. And uh, yes, there were the two hotels and the Magic Kingdom Park, and the two golf courses, too. So on, on opening day, it was it was ready to go, and uh, uh, all of the major elements were in place. And uh, so, uh, but you, you were right. Uh, and the monorail system, of course, the double monorail system, the express and the local. Wow. The local would stop at all of the different places around the loop, at the express would just go from the parking transportation center to the main gate and then shoot back through the contemporary hotel back to the parking lot. It was more of a, of a loading uh, system for people who were visiting there. Uh, And if you were staying there, you'd take the local. Yeah. Uh, Chris, let me, let me go to you. I want to ask you, what's your, what's your first memories of Walt Disney world? What was the first time you went there? Well, it is, this is really, really sad. <laughs> I didn't I didn't go there until I was working for the company. And, and I feel this great sense of loss and regret because, I'm, you know, I'm such a Southern California kid mm-hmm. growing up with with parks like Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm here. And, and you know, so so much of my early childhood spent there. 
I always kind of knew about Florida when Epcot was opening. I remember my grandparents took a trip out there and I was kind of like, oh, kind of jealous. Anyway, long story short, I didn't get out there until the the 2000s. Um, I completely missed the heyday of everything. Like if I could jump in my time machine and go back and, you know, see, you know, see the Rolly Crump version of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride or uh, Ride Horizons uh, at Epcot um, or Ride If You Had Wings, you know, at the Magic Kingdom. They're all, you know, which, which, you know, Alan's dad really designed. Which, by the way, sidebar, I think If You Have Wings is fascinating. It's kind of like the lost sister attraction to Adventure Through Inner Space, which, which Alan's dad, Claude, also did. And it's really interesting just to see, like, from a, from a design aspect, the differences, it, it really where, where Claude Coates was taking things in terms of mixing dimensional set work with projected material. And you see, he's really experimenting with this in Adventure Through Inner Space, Hillary, California. And then when you do it, if you had wings, it's kind of taking it to the next level. And now, you know, projection mapping, projection mixed with dimensional set work is such a standard in our industry. Uh, really, Claude Coates was really a pioneer at the forefront of that. But, but aside from that, that, that 70s and early 80s where Epcot is concerned vibe, I guess, for lack of a better term, I, I love that stuff so much. And I just missed out on it completely. So. I'm going to come back to you in a moment because I want Ethan to jump in because Ethan, you're considered part of the generation three uh, Imagineers. Uh, and, and I'm imagining uh, Alan, we're, we're, we're going to call you gen two and your father was gen one, right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. So, but uh, Ethan, uh, what was your first experience with Walt Disney world? My first experience with Walt Disney world was in 1986. We took a family trip out to the East coast. Um, and, uh, Yeah, we stayed like four days at uh, Walt Disney World and fell in love with Figment, uh, Journey to Imagination, just loved that American adventure. Um, Epcot made uh, education fun for me. And um, that was really the trip that like made me think, wow, Disney's really great. A great mouse detective had just come out at the, you know, in the theaters. And, you know, so I was like, that summer was like my Disney summer. And I just like got all in after that Walt Disney World trip. Uh, you're starting to date me. I worked on Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, Dave, that was so amazing when it came out for those of us who wanted to go into animation because we're like, oh my God, look at this CG technology that's like happening. Like that's- Yeah, that was, it was, it was one of the earliest films to use uh, uh, you know, CG, yeah. uh, the whole clock gear sequence. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, yeah. listen, that's for another show. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do want to jump back to Chris and uh, you know, you, you wrote a fabulous two volume book, Mark Davis in his own words. And and of course, Mark did a lot of work down on Walt Disney world. Yeah. Um, can, can you shed a little bit of light on some of the projects that Mark worked on? And uh, well, this is a five hour podcast, right? If you can condense it, cause I'm going <laughs> to kind of go back and forth between everybody, but I mean, yeah. just name a few of the projects. Just, just kind of yeah. going chronologically. Well, just chronologically logically or at least you know mark did a bunch of new scenes for jungle cruise including the, the infamous man-eating plant which never happened and got replaced by these goofy giant frogs and then they got ripped out so that's kind of an interesting thing uh he he did the third iteration of carousel of progress which is still in florida today um he he did less on florida's small world alan you can correct me that but florida's small world really feels like mostly really crump and, and mary blair did a little bit more work on it 
or over the Florida yes. version. Uh, Pirates, for sure. He did new scenes um, and adjusted older ones for Walt Disney World. Haunted Mansion, he didn't work on while they were doing it, but they took a lot of his mid-60s gags for the mansion here in Disneyland that didn't make it and, and used it there, and including a really interesting gag that they actually mocked up a prototype for um, for the Haunted Mansion in Florida. It was, we call it the Squeaky Door Ghost. And uh, there's a picture of it in, in the book and a picture of the mock-up behind um, Waithel Rogers. Uh, we could just see it. So they actually did make a figure of it. But it, what it is, is it's, it's, it's what I call like a 1930s style spook house ghost, like a bedsheet with eyes, <laughs> but in a little French maid outfit. <laughs> and, and she, and she's, she's and so and with a feather duster, right. But she's, uh, she's adding squeaks to the door instead of removing them. <laughs> so we did, Ethan, you remember, we, we briefly talked about bringing the squeaky door ghost back for Florida's 50th, uh, back in 2019, but that didn't go anywhere too fast. We were, we were shot down pretty quick on that one. Uh, but, uh, I, I love that gag. It's, that's like a lost Mark Davis gag that I think is still really funny. Um, he did uh, country bear jamboree, of course, for Florida first, which is an yeah. absolute classic show, uh, with Albertino. And then there's all these lost projects that, that Mark did for Florida, like the Western River Adventure, which again, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, or I'm sorry, the Western River Expedition is the correct term. Um, was that, a, was uh, Chris, was that an offshoot of something he had, was trying to develop for Disneyland or had developed for Disneyland, but never, it never. No, actually, no, actually the opposite. His, his, how he explained it to me is he said, look, we're, we're developing ideas for Florida and Alan can speak to this because he was there, but he, uh, he said, why are we going to bring pirates to Florida? Pirates are already such a big part of the lore and the history. He said, let's bring the West to the East. So he wanted to do a, a Pirates of the Caribbean size. It's actually even bigger uh, show, but with Wild West Cowboys and Indians, and there was going to be a, a theme song that they didn't get too far on. But I would say this is probably one of the most closest to realized attractions for a Disney theme park that was canceled. Like you don't get as, I mean, they were well into working drawings. They had done several models. They actually made a couple of the animated figures, which end up in a couple of Epcot attractions later. Like I think the Buffalo in the land attraction are actually were slated for the Western river expedition, but Mark worked on this so hard and it, it really would, it's this lost, amazing attraction. And they were into working drawings. They had announced it publicly and then they pulled the whole thing. And the only wow. part of the Western river expedition that really survived was, was Tony Baxter's big thunder mountain railroad, which was kind of, tacked on to the side of the show building yeah. and, and eventually it becomes its own thing and they never get back to it. That really broke Mark's heart. Wow. And then there's all these, like all these little weird one shot things that Mark did for Florida didn't make it. Um, well, one that did make it was a lot of people don't realize Mark did the, uh, the Bay Lake electrical water pageant, you know, which is so low tech, right? Like, yeah. But it's such a charming little fan favorite. It's a fabulous uh, show. You know, I, I have to tell you guys, I grew up on the East Coast. I know some of you are Southern California kids and you grew up with Disneyland. I never made it to Disneyland until like 1980. I was at Walt Disney World in 1976. Wow. So, you know, uh, so I had a lot of experience with Walt Disney World. But let me, I, I want to jump, Chris, for a second. I want to jump yeah. back to Alan because, Chris, you mentioned something about uh, the carousel 
Cell Progress. Alan, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was your father's idea for uh, uh, for Disneyland, but not uh, in necessarily uh, Tomorrowland. It, it eventually wound up being developed, I guess, for uh, the World's Fair before it went to Disneyland. But it was it had originated for Edison. Was it Edison Land or? No, it was, it was the carous. This is a, one something that I learned in doing the book with you, Dave. I didn't know that my father had conceived this this idea of the revolving carousel theater. That was his concept for an early Disneyland extension of Tomorrowland called Adventures in Science. What that was it? Yeah, Aven- or Adventures Science Land. Science and Land. One of the yeah. big pavilions was going to be Adventures in Science. It was a time travel adventure from dinosaurs into the future, into uh, outer space. Mm. And he designed this huge, big revolving theater on railroad tracks. Yeah. And uh, all, all of this never happened. But but later on, when they were trying to figure out about how they were going to tell the GE story of electricity, Bob Gurr said, well, let's dig out that old Claude Coates revolving theater idea and see if that will work to tell the story of electricity. So it did become the GE Carousel of Progress for the New York World's Fair, right? Yeah. And then that got moved to Disneyland. So there's no bad ideas. They all eventually come back maybe in another form. Chris and Ethan, you know this, that uh, you dig out an old idea and, and use it in a new way. Uh, like you said, they did for your ideas for uh, the Jungle Cruise, Chris. Yeah. You know, one so. thing I, I, I don't want to skip over too much because I'm kind of obsessed with this, Alan, is um, you're talking about the original Carousel Progress for the New York World's Fair. And there's this really great piece of artwork that your dad did. He actually did a couple of them. And it's this weird thing that kind of got forgotten where they were trying to come up with a with like an overall icon theme for the Carousel of Progress. And I think it's your dad hit on this idea of a of a general electric genie, capital G, capital E, N I E. And they had the and so there's this great piece of artwork. There's a couple of them that your dad did um, outside the uh, Carousel of Progress Pavilion with this giant genie like up on a pedestal. And, and it's in I've got it in the Mark Davis book if you look it up. And there's a couple of more. There's a there's an inside uh, one where he's got like a genie greeting the people in the audience. And it's this weird little thing. And then Mark Davis did some ideas um, for a big water sculpture with a big genie in the middle of it, too. So mm-hmm. it was this thing that that Mark and your dad and I assume Hench and some of these other people were talking about as part of the General Electric uh, uh, Pavilion. So it's just it's kind of an interesting and, and it just went away yeah. like someone. I don't know what happened, why it went away, but it's kind of an interesting deep nerdy cut. It, it did go away because I never saw it, Chris. Thank you for that history <laughs> lesson. Yeah. The GE Genie, that's a great yeah, idea. I didn't know about yeah. that. Yeah, and your dad did some great pieces of artwork for it. It's very cool. I want to pull oh, Ethan. Yeah. Ethan, I, I, you've been sitting there patiently um, uh, listening and enjoying these stories. I, I want to bring you into the into the fold here and and ask you what 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 are the favorite memories you have from Walt Disney World? Well, I mean, uh, working. Yeah, working. Um, you know, I think uh, my very first trip uh, to Walt Disney World to, for work was uh, working on uh, the dinosaur attraction. Yeah. Um, you know, we were uh, the, the, because I was animating the figures, the uh, skins on the dinosaurs were not holding up. So we had to like 
there was like this replacement program for all of the dinosaur skins. So we had to take them off. So we had to come up with these like pop-up raptors that we would just like, you know, program and they'd like move them in, every, you know, in the evening and they would like take a dinosaur down. So you'd go through and, you know, the, the, they would just change out the scene like, you know, every month really? or so. And it would just like move throughout the attraction. It was really, so I was out there for like working nights for, I want to say a couple of weeks and, and that was fun. And I had not been since I was a kid. And, you know, the park was so different and like so yeah. big. And it was, it was a little overwhelming for me, like coming from, you know, California and only really knowing Disneyland. Uh, so, you know, but it was cool to go back. And then of course, you know, tons of different uh, attractions later, I think, uh, you know, worked on Hall of Presidents a couple times. And of course, I think Seven Doors Mine Train has to be my favorite and, you know all about that one, Dave, because we worked on that together. Yes, we did. Uh, absolutely. We had a lot of fun on that one. Uh, but let me ask you something, Ethan, just real quick, because you mentioned the Hall of Presidents. You know, the Hall of Presidents gets get, gets sort of uh, dealt with uh, on, on every four years, obviously, um, right. in some way, shape or form. Can you talk a little bit about those audio animatronics? Because I know you you did a lot of animation with those audio animatronics and there there's a lot of maintenance that goes into those that people don't realize. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you, when I think the last time I worked in there was in 2001, we were adding the George W. Bush figure. And, um, and, you know, there was probably had a team of like four to five maintenance uh, guys working on that attraction, like who would just maintain the audio animatronics. And, you know, you had what, what, at least 40 presidents at the time. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but you know, they all have to be in top working condition. Um, and, you know, cause you want to treat these characters reverential, right? Cause sure. they're, they're, the, they're the presidents. And I don't think they had them talking until uh, Bill Clinton became president. Like mm-hmm. you would just have the roll call. And I think they would like add in the, you know, the, the Jimmy Carter figure, the Reagan figure, right. And, you know, all those different figures, but in, you know, 92, I don't know if they were just getting ready for that Disney's America project that never happened, but you know, they decided, Hey, we're going to go film the president. Right. And we're going to record the president and we're going to make a, a realistic, a audiomatronic as we can of the standing president. So uh-huh. Bill Clinton was the first one to get that, uh, that, you know, treatment. And then George W. Bush was the next one. And, uh, you know, they, I did not get to go to the white house. I kind of wish I had, <laughs> but you know, cause how often you get to do that, but there was definitely a team from Imagineering, our audio guy, sure. the creative director. They got to go to the white house, you know, meet the president, you know, the, of course, script went back and forth and, you know, every subsequent president since then they have, you know, audio team, creative director, uh, they go out there, and I think, you know, all of them had been sculpted by uh, Blaine Gibson. So one of the first generation Imagineers, he, sure. sculpt, he sculpted all of them through um, uh, Obama, I think. So, wow. Yeah. So you know, let me let me ask you this, because I heard some rumblings about this. What was the deal with the Trump audio animatronic? Because there was some <laughs> I know. I, I Listen, I want to I want to you know, this is where we hear the behind the scenes stories, because somebody said like the Trump uh, somebody uh, claimed that they had created a Hillary uh, sculpture that they the conformed. Yeah. So I want to I want to let's clear the air that one. Right, Ethan. Like, that's not true. That's that. Um, I never saw that. I, you know what? I think they were, there was definitely, I, Chris and I were working on, you know, 
Tokyo Disneyland expansion on New Fantasyland when that stuff was happening. But yeah. we were in the same building with R&D, right? And right. R&D, I think they were probably like looking at new ways to you know, streamline how do you get a realistic likeness of a yeah. celebrity. It could be yeah. you know, Hillary. I'll, I'll just say I, I, I remember seeing the Trump figure cycling in R&D. Uh-huh. Um, and I not, I'm not saying they didn't do a, a temp sculpt of Hillary Clinton just in case. Cause I think that probably would have been a prudent thing to do, but I sure. never saw that cycling. So this online rumor about, Oh, they had a Hillary head and they just swapped the face. You know, that's not, I don't, I, yeah, no, that's not, that's not true. Yeah. yeah. That, that, they, I figured as much. And I wanted to, I wanted us to be the first to debunk that rumor. <laughs> debunk. I don't have a debunk yeah. sound right effect. Here on the Skull Rock podcast. There's, <laughs> there's so much, it's so weird, you know, and it's like with the internet, it, it's so funny. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I think it would have been easy to go. Oh, that's just a thing on the internet, whatever. But now a days, you know, there, there is so much disinformation out there about a million things, but, but also, you know, Disney history, it's so easy for someone to just kind of make something up or have a hypothesis about something and it takes on a life of its own. And then you spend the rest of your life debunking it. In fact, even I, I know Alan and I, we, we've talked about this, but this bringing it back to Imagineering uh, first generation, there's this longstanding rumor. I call it a myth saying that Mark Davis and Claude Coates didn't get along, didn't like each other. Uh, that's just a bunch of bullshit. I mean, I, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not accurate. And mark no, mark not. that Al John. We've got to put a beep in. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's All right, guys, of, this yeah. is a family show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, but you know, and that, I mean, that's why I made sure there's some great photos of Claude and Evie Coates at Mark and Alice Davis's during Christmas time. Yeah. Having, having a wonderful time with, with Mary Blair and, and, you know, Greta Von Kestrel and, and all these wed luminaries. They were friendly with each other. Sure. Maybe they didn't go on yes. vacation together, but you know, and so that's, that's taken on like a life of its own. Even I, you know, you see people have done like comics of like, you know, Mark and Claude arguing. I don't know. It's all, you, you know, something it, it is, it, it becomes a telephone game uh, yeah. that just uh, spins out of control over decades. Right. So yeah, I know you've debunked it and we've actually debunked it in the Claude Coates book. That's just yeah. releasing yes. uh, in the next. They month. had very different artistic abilities and they, they were different gentlemen in, in their personalities. And Walt recognized that, didn't he? He put them together. Together and look what they were able to create in the Pirates of the Caribbean. They needed yeah. to work together. You put two guys like that in a room and you're going to come up with something great. If you put two guys that are yes men with the same abilities and it's not going to be as exciting as what they were able to create together. Good yeah. point. Yeah. Alan, do you have a favorite memory from uh, working down at Walt Disney World with, you know, like opening day or, you know, something that happened behind the scenes? Oh, boy, there's so many of them. Um, Give us a let, juicy let me one. Say something, let me say something <laughs> about opening day. That was October 1st, 1971. Yeah. And I was standing in front of the castle wondering, is anybody going to show up? We're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And I really did wondered if anyone was going to find us, find this wonderful, huge creation that we had done. And only 11,000 people showed up that first day. 11,000 people that you couldn't even see them. They disappeared into the Magic Kingdom. That was a very small amount of people. But that was very good for us because it gave us a chance in those first early weeks of October. The grand opening was the last weekend, the last 
three weekend days was huge. But those first three weeks gave us time to tweak and fine tune the whole kingdom with a very small amount of people. So the word got out. It was kind of a, a soft opening, really. It was a soft opening. And yeah. I, I've seen some misinformation about this huge extra. It wasn't like Disneyland's opening on, on July 17th, 1955. Mm. October 1st, 71 was a very quiet opening. Yeah. The, the, the big opening was that last weekend. And Roy's dedication speech was on Monday, October 25th. Wow. And by then the word had gotten out. And on Thanksgiving Day... 50,000 people arrived. Wow. I-4 was backed up for 11 miles. It still is. And (laughs) (laughs) we all said, we breathed a sigh that, okay, we have a hit on our hands. We we did it. Amazing. That's awesome. That's something else. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, Chris, can you uh, speak to uh, a couple of the projects? Uh, Because I I know one of the things that's so amazing to me is that, you know, when you think of Walt Disney World, it's not just the Magic Kingdom, but 50 years ago it was. But since then, all these other parks have opened, all these other resorts, uh, hotels, uh, shopping areas. I mean, it's an amazing complex now. Down there, but one of those other gates uh, is Epcot, uh, and Mark did some work on. Was it the American Pavilion? Yeah, he he worked on a couple of shows. He also worked on the Transportation Pavilion uh, with Alan's dad and with Ward Kimball too. But but the American Pavilion is is also of interest because Mark really got the first whack. At, at what that would be. And so we, we all know the American adventure is this amazing. And, and for its time, the te- technological advances behind that show is just absolutely incredible. But Mark's first attempt at it was actually to design a Omnimover uh, style, uh, slow moving dark ride uh, with a musical theme uh, based around the theme of Americana. And uh, it's interesting because I, you know, as much as, I mean, you'll be hard pressed to find a bigger fan of Mark Davis than me, but, but it's definitely not his best work. And, uh, and I think there's only so much you can do with that theme, but so it's in the book, um, a lot of the concept artwork, but Mark not only did the concept, he also wrote a theme song for it, which he wrote the lyrics for. And somehow he roped Buddy Baker into doing the music for it. And somehow they were able to put together a scratch track of this song for this lost ride, which did never existed. Um, and, and we, I, and we have that, right? I mean, we right. have, we, so Al yeah, John, so can, can we play a little audio clip? Yeah, absolutely. Check this out. Wow, that's uh, that's a uh, that's a clip, all right. Wow, yeah, so wow. It's, uh, it's it's no great big beautiful tomorrow, but golden dreams. Certainly not a golden dream. But uh, it's it's amazing, and that and that that track goes on for for way too long. But Pete Renaday <laughs> is in it, which is interesting. And uh, yeah, and so so the 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 rumor is, and you know, Mark never talked to me about it, but people who were there at the time just the rumor was that 
Mari Scalar and John Hench and people like Dick Nunes absolutely hated this, just, just thought it was <laughs> terrible. And so it very quickly turned into Mark coming up, well, what are we going to do? Well, maybe I'll design some sort of a theater show with just famous people from America, like Mark Twain, like Benjamin Franklin, talking. And he does these series of illustrations. And then that kind of morphs into, and then other people take that off Mark's plate, and it kind of morphs into what becomes the American adventure as we know it today, which again is such a impressive and, and emotionally moving show. Mm-hmm. And, and again, yeah. the tech, the tech behind that show, how all the set pieces move in and out, the idea of just trying to make an animate, you know, an animatronic figure look like you're walking up a flight of stairs. That that's right. that's really impressive for 19- well, And that was that was the first time, Ethan, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but was, was that the first time that an audio animatronic was uh, you know uh, used to kind of go up a flight of stairs? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Dave Fighton was the uh, animator on that. And, oh, yeah. I uh, remember Dave Fighton. Yeah. yeah and and uh, Larry Sheldon, who I worked with for years, he was, uh, I think he was like the lead, uh, you know, figure engineer. And he and I would like every week we'd go out to vendors and stuff and look at figures being built all around Southern California. And he'd tell me these amazing stories like in the car. And I'd always ask him about the, um, you know, the, the machines. I mean, all the lifts, everything that's going on in the American Adventure. If you ever get to go backstage, it is truly remarkable. I mean, it's right. it's an, it's an amazing thing, and it was all done without uh, computer previous. Today, you know, when an audiomatronic figure is done, like we did on you know Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, we we look at it all in the computer first. Right, we, right. We pre-animate it. We know what it's going to be. You hand it off to the engineer. They can you know bring into a program like SolidWorks and really figure out all the nuts and bolts. And, you know, American Adventure in 1981, I mean, that was done without any of that stuff. So that's truly amazing to me. That's what, yeah. you know, Alan's generation and the generation before, I, I, I have, I'm so impressed and awed by the work that they did without, you know, without CAD, without previs, they're, you know, hand drafting things. I mean, if you ever look at some of the, you know, the early, you know, the, the 60s and 70s uh, working drawings and show set drawings, there's no, it's not a geometric cold dead CAD design. It is a beautifully, lovingly hand drawn, like I just, I'm, I know this isn't Florida, but I'm thinking of like, there, there are working drawings for the Tom Sawyer Treehouse uh, from Disneyland. They're just gorgeous. And, and just spatially, they're all, everything's worked out. It, it's so hard to do that kind of work. It's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. Alan, uh, once Walt Disney World opened, and there's a great picture of you with your mother and father um, uh, in front of the castle down there from, I think it's 1971. Is that right? That, that's the right. One that's yes. in, it's at the beginning of the Claude Coates book. Um, the, the one, once the park opened, what were some of the issues that, that came to light quickly? Were there any, you know, in other words, you know, were there, were there shows that, uh, needed to have work done on them right away or things breaking down? No, everything was perfect. We did a fantastic job. There were no problems at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, Dave, those first three weeks or so, we had a chance to fix a lot of things, talk to people, and, uh, you know, stuff had to be worked out. But um, I really was impressed with with the way things were. It was Dick Irvine who was in charge of, of show installation. And by the time I had arrived there, I could see that he had the forethought to start getting things rolling ahead of us. 
to make sure that when we arrive to do lighting and show installation and the special effects in the Haunted Mansion, the, the main elements had already been put in the show buildings. He had planned this very closely down to opening day. So I've heard about all the chaos that went on down there and, and all that. It, it really went rather smoothly considering the size of the project. And when I first saw it, it was basically a mud hole. And in eight months, it, it, it was pretty well finished and, and, and smoothly operating, as I had said earlier. So I can't think of any major problem that that we had to deal with after opening day, believe it or not, it, it went pretty smoothly. Yeah. What, why do you think they chose Florida? I know Walt, I know Walt wanted to do something on the East coast park wise, but why Florida? Does anybody well, have a, have an opinion? Well, I do. I, for obviously that because of the weather was wonderful there and the land was cheap and uh, you had people on, you had a captive audience that we finally captured on I-4 going down to Miami, and it was where people from your area, Dave, in New York, that's yeah. where they went in season, right? Sure, sure. So it seemed to be an obvious choice. There were many others, and Chris, you know this too, that Walt was thinking about New York and St. Louis and yeah. these other locations, but Florida just seemed like the logical place to go. But, you know, Orlando is the lightning strike capital of the world, or at least <laughs> the United States, you know. I mean, you know, you know I wonder, I'm just saying. I, I wonder if 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 Walt's decision, I'm just purely guessing, had anything to do with the, the debacle of Freedom Land uh, falling apart in New York. Did you ever experience that, Dave, or see that? No, I, I was aware that he was looking at doing a Freedom Land in New York, but I, I don't know that much about it. Oh, no, actually, the where actually he Walt Disney had nothing to do with Freedom Land. It was an off. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah. 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 It was, but it, it, was, but it only yeah. was open for like, I'm, I'm guess I think it was just a couple of years. It, right? it was, it was sort of a themed or yeah. it was an attempt at a themed amusement my dad, park in the New my York dad, areas. Yeah. yeah. My dad yeah. grew up in the Bronx and he loved going to freedom land because it was like wow. right there. And you know, if you oh. watch any videos and stuff of it, I mean, it looks like Disneyland. Yeah. I mean like 1950s Disneyland. And yeah. um, you know, my dad has great memories of that, but I mean, I'm sure they, you know, when they did the New York, I think the New York world's fair is what really killed Freedom Land, right? Because you had the actual Disney attractions, yeah, right? Small yeah. world, you had and great moments with Mr. Lincoln and Carousel of Progress, right? All right there, yeah. Um, so I think that took a lot of business away from Freedom Land, but I'm sure Walt and the team learned a lot, like from those two years of having those attractions operating in New York, right? Oh, absolutely, and they would have experienced the winters. Exactly. You know, and and I think obviously, you know, for obvious reasons, going to Florida where you have uh, reasonable weather year round, right? Uh, yes. it, you know, makes it a, makes it a decent location. You know, it's it's something us West Coast people take for granted. You know, I didn't really think of that too deeply. It was like, oh yeah, you got to shut down in the winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Dave, you mentioned the lightning capital of the world. I don't remember any major lightning issues, but it's the rain that, that was the issue there. And dad had told me, you know, we're going to have to be covering a lot more of the attractions. The teacups, for instance, uh, in Fantasyland have mm -hmm. a canopy over them because yeah. you can't just leave them out in the rain or they fill up with the water, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> and there are many more uh, balconies and eaves and coves and places for people to get out of the rain because 
in the summertime when we were there, it would rain like crazy every day at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> you could set you, you, you could set your clock to it, and, and well, yeah, exactly. It's great, still done. great, great time for a parade. For a half an hour. <laughs> but but those are brief showers that come through. I mean, usually what for 15, 20 minutes at best. Well, it could get pretty heavy, and yeah. construction had to be you know, held up for a half an hour. Sure. Until, and then the beautiful sun would come out and there'd be a great sunset. So I love the weather there. It was humid, but uh, it, was, uh, it was it was great. I loved it. You know, e- Ethan, I want to jump to you on, on humidity. What does that do to the audio animatronics? Yeah. Uh, and, and I know most of them are in inside of air-conditioned show buildings, but there still has to be a climate issue. Well, I mean, gosh, I, most, I don't, think I ever worked on any figures that were outdoors in Florida. Um, And, you know, I think Chris mentioned, you know, we worked a little bit on the redo of Jungle Cruise. I do remember like walking through there like early last year, like with the team and just being scared to death walking through the jungle there because it's like something's going to jump out at me, like (laughs) something real because it's Florida. Um, But humidity, it's like, honestly, um, Hong Kong and, uh, Tokyo, especially Hong Kong, the humidity is much worse in Hong Kong. So. Is it really? Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. You, you've been you've been to that part of the world or Singapore, where yeah. I worked for a few years, and you realize the humidity in Florida is nothing. Like that's baby stuff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is scary because I I hate humidity. So. Yeah. <laughs> So even on the most humid day in Florida, it's nothing compared to Southeast Asia. Absolutely. Not, not no the jungle, the right, jungle sweats. Singapore is literally right above the equator. So. Yeah. Yeah. But even, right. even like the rainstorms, it's like, you know, Alan was talking about the three o'clock rainstorms. What I like about the rainstorms in Florida that are light, like at three o'clock, after like, you know, the sun comes out, the entire park is clean. Like custodial <laughs> must actually love it. Cause it's like, it gets a hose down in the middle of the day. Um, but uh, yeah, it's like when we were in, when I was in Hong Kong, you'd have like what amber rain, black rain. And, and it's like, and they call it black rain. Cause you couldn't see there was like so much rain coming down. So wow. yeah, Florida's easy. Like wow. weather wise. <laughs> Okay, I I have a new appreciation for Florida now, (laughs) from a weather standpoint. Uh, Chris, can you talk to some of the oddball projects that Mark may have been involved with that just like the most oddball? Because when we were doing the Claude Coates book, Alan and I were laughing about the uranium uh, hunt. Uh, I know that was a brief attraction where you'd go out with a Geiger counter and find like these uh, radioactive rocks out in a and field. I'm fascinated by the way. I, 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 I yeah. can't wait to I am too. your book. It's, yeah. it's going to be so interesting. Um, yeah. So, so Mark did a lot of things that didn't, didn't go anywhere. And, and some of them were things he asked, was asked to do. And some of them, the things he was kind of doing make work projects for himself. But one that's kind of interesting that I didn't get to show enough of the artwork in the book was um, he, for the uh the swan boats that that went around the park the the long departed much loved swan boats and magic kingdom uh he was going to do um a series of topiary sculptures but uh from mother goose rhymes where there'd almost be like a part one and a part two where you'd come around the corner so those are going to be along the banks that you would see from the swan boats that didn't happen uh for those of you who know about 
Treasure Island, uh, that little island uh, right in the bay there uh, that used to have a bird exhibit. Uh, before that, they were going to develop that a lot more and they were going to have a walk through almost like a like a shipwreck and a pirate. So it was very Pirates of the Caribbean and Mark had some some pirates gags in there and some Pepper's Ghost gags in there. And um, there was a whole fun house that he was going to do in Fort Wilderness, which was being developed around the time you were there, Alan uh which yes. didn't make it um there was a show called sadie maze where i someone must have had the brilliant idea of let's take the tooling from all the figures for america sings and let's take the tooling from all the figures for bear band and let's pick and choose and make a new show out of all these figures and it was going to be this big show called sadie maze in a theater and it was going to have humans interacting with the animatronics so that's something that never happened. I, so I think that was going to happen at Fort Wilderness as well. Because uh, like Alan says, Fort Wilderness is its own thing, right? Uh, what, by the, uh, by the oh, way, I, I camped at Fort Wilderness back in the mid-70s. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, right in the and day. I will tell you right now, I prefer the Wilderness Lodge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was going to say that the, the big one that got away from Magic Kingdom that I think is so fascinating and um, is there was a show and I assume uh, it would have gone in the carousel. Alan, maybe you know about this and can speak differently, but Monsanto came to WED and wanted to do um, a show about uh, time travel. So believe it or not, Mark Davis and Ray Bradbury, of all yep. things, worked uh -huh. together on this thing called the Yestermorrow Time Machine. And the artwork that Mark did is fabulous. And there's a whole script. So it's almost like this lost mini book by Ray Bradbury. And the only <laughs> copy that exists is in the IRC, the Imagineering Library, only because Mark saved it. Uh, and if you read this script that Ray Bradbury wrote, it's bug nuts, crazy. And it's just like all this like wrath of God and wrath of humanity. And there's this motif of fire, like, you know, and man reaches up like Prometheus and grabs fire, you know, and it's just this really heavy, intense thing they did for Monsanto. It's also fascinating, too. Uh, so that one didn't happen for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, so there, there's lots of these little weird offshoot things that, that Mark designed that never went anywhere. Wow. And then of course, the, and of course, the big one too is uh, is the Enchanted Snow Palace, which I'm sure you've seen concept art for, which was going to be gorgeous. And I think it's one of the things that really broke Mark's heart at the end that he worked. He did these incredibly beautiful illustrations. It was going to be this slow moving boat ride inside. It was air conditioned to get out of the Florida humidity. And it had all these really cute Mark Davis-y uh, little penguins and polar bears and then these beautiful ice princesses and you would journey to their ice palace and it got lost. And, you know, and speaking of Internet rumors and apocryphal things, people have I mean, you can speak to this, Dave, because you were there, but people always say. Oh, the people who designed Frozen ripped off Mark's Enchanted Snow Palace designs for the look of Frozen because it is very Elsa esque looking. Yeah, but that's well, not true at all. I talked to no, you know, no. I and, talked to Mike. Mike Giamo told me straight up. He said we didn't take anything from Mark's stuff. We looked at Ivan Earl work for that. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but Frozen uh, is is based on uh, uh, Hans Christian Andersen's Snow Queen, and uh, and Snow Queen was being developed at. Disney 
Disney in the 1940s. Uh, and then it was developed again in the early 2000s by uh, Paul and Gaetan Britzi, the mm. Britzi brothers, and, uh, for an animated film. And then that got put aside and shelved. And then uh, other people picked up the the torch and, and cracked the story. And that's what eventually became Frozen. Right. You know, so I, I you know, you can't sit there and say anybody's ripping anybody off there there's you know the only the only uh kernel uh is the fact that they were trying to develop snow queen right that, oh, that's yeah. it that's where that's cool. where it started from but yeah. alan i want to ask you um were there any projects that your dad because we didn't go into walt disney world in the book we we focused on disneyland but i'm just curious if you recall any projects that your dad may have been developing for uh walt disney world that never were never made uh let's see um and, and the other question i want to ask is why is pirates uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, a short ride down in Orlando. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I loved Pirates because I've only experienced Pirates at Walt Disney World yeah. until I came to California. And then when I when I experienced Pirates at Disneyland in California, I was like, oh my god, I've been ripped off all these years. This is the ride. You well, know? If, I, if I could jump in, I don't know what you're going to say, Alan, but but Tony Baxter told me straight up, he said, John Hench like, got rid of all the caves because he thought it was awful and a big mistake. Mm. So that cuts that cuts at least like a third out of the beginning of the ride to begin with. Yeah. Oh, did he say that? Oh, <laughs> Grotto, that was a great introduction to that attraction. I know, I know. I couldn't disagree more. The Grotto sets everything up. But what, what I mean, you were around during that time, Alan. What do you remember? A, a couple of things. There may not have been the space there in Adventureland. To, uh, yeah. It became, uh, what, the Caribbean Plaza. There, there may have been a space problem in fitting... Uh, the entire attraction in there. There was also the, uh, like you mentioned about the uh, Western River Expedition, yes. that was going to be the theme of, they, you know, the people that went in, in, in who made decisions thought there needed to be more Western influence, the Wild West in the East Coast. So when that didn't fly, they they had to work very quickly to get the pirates open within two years. Didn't it open in 73? So that was that was it had to it had to happen quickly and maybe they didn't give it enough thought to fit into the space. Yeah, and yeah, and also it wasn't part of the master planning originally, right? So they no, it wasn't. It wasn't part of the master planning, yeah. and neither was a thrill ride. The thinking was, well, these are older retired people; they're on their way to Miami. They're going to stop here and bring their families, maybe. But there wasn't a thrill ride. There, there was no Matterhorn bobsleds, of course, and they. They said, we got to get a thrill ride in here fast because teenagers were wanting to have that kind of an experience. So Space Mountain came along first in, in Florida and it opened in 75, I believe. And so they, they you know, they found, as you asked Dave, what, what was needed after opening? Well, they needed uh, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Get it in there because people want it. And they needed the thrill ride, and that's the beginning of Space Mountain to, to build that um, 
that attraction. So you know, I, I got to tell you though, you know, for me, uh, going through the grotto uh, uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland, you're in this sort of very sort of closed-in space, mm-hmm. and and it's kind of setting you all up. And then when you come out of that into that expansive room with the uh, uh, the galleon firing cannons at the Spanish Town and area, it's one of the greatest reveals of any immersive attraction, I think. And it's the world's greatest happy accident because, again, the original design, you know, for those of you who know, Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland is is set in two show buildings. And the first show building was actually where they were going to do this wax museum pirates walkthrough attraction. And then when they changed it to a ride, they tried to shove everything into that first show building. At a certain point, Walt Disney goes, it's not going to fit. We've got to go out underneath the berm into a second show building. So the whole show gets relocated into that second show building. And now they're going, well, what do we do with the first show building? And Walt Disney tells the team, just fill it up with skeletons and creepy caves. But it works so well because you're not thrown into this thing. You have a long, slow journey to kind of really set the mood. And then, like you say, Dave, when you get that first big reveal of, of the bombing the fort, it's the most impressive thing you've ever seen. Yeah, it yes. really is. It really is. And, and I, I have to say, I miss that in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, you know, having only experienced that one at the time, I loved it. I, I mean, I have to say, I did love it. <laughs> Don't have you know? to but, but, you know, so, <laughs> but Alan, getting back to uh, any other projects that come to mind of your dad doing stuff down in Orlando that may or may not have come to fruition? Well, what did come to fruition was the first new attraction to open at Walt Disney World. And that was If You Had Wings in Tomorrowland. It was sponsored by Eastern Airlines. And I worked very closely with Dad on that that project. And Mm. uh, and I think Chris mentioned this. It was, the layout was similar because it was an Omnimover attraction that ribboned its way through the Caribbean and uh, New Orleans and Florida, where Eastern Airlines would just love to take you on your next vacation. It was really a commercial for Mm. Eastern Airlines, but it was, very high-tech hybrid of theme park attraction and documentary film because we shot a lot of material, live action material in uh, in the Caribbean mm. that was projected into set pieces. So mm. it was a it was a very technically it, it was a very interesting uh, a combination of technologies. And Don Iwerks mm. of, of Sun worked very closely with us in building 50 loop projectors, film loop projectors that would project film into these set pieces, Mm. plus two 70 millimeter projectors on gimbals for the speed room and the mirror room, which were huge environments of of imagery. Mm. And the Omnimover would tilt backward and you'd feel like you were just going a hundred miles an hour. So that, that was one attraction that was really uh, quite impressive that I worked closely with Dad on after I, I, the opening. I, I do want to just mention for the Gen Xers and the hipsters that are listening <laughs> that uh, Eastern Airlines was a major carrier in the United States. I mean, they were up there with American and United and Delta, mm-hmm. and they went the way of Pan Am, which was another major airline that, that has since disappeared. Yes. 
I just think it's amazing. Your, your dad was such a pioneer. He's really, you, you think about attractions like Rise of the Resistance today, which is so media heavy, really seamlessly integrating set work and, and, and media. Your dad was at the forefront of that stuff. Um, in fact, Alan, did, you, did, did your dad work on uh, the speed tunnel things for the people mover here in California? The speed tunnel? Yeah. Do you remember that on the people? Movie? Yeah, Alan, you remember that piece of vi visual development with the car, the car going into the uh, uh, speed tunnel? Yeah, on the on the people mover, you'd go in, you'd go into you'd go through Space Mountain and then you'd come out and then you'd go into the carousel uh, building. And there were projected in the 70s. Originally, there were dune buggies and cars racing by you very fast. And then yes. in the 80s, when Tron came out, they turned it into the people move her through the world of Tron and then they were projecting light cycles and going fast by you. And I'm just, it's such a projected thing. It seems so similar to what your dad was doing with, if you had wings. He developed that the speed tunnels for the New York world's fair for the magic skyway. Okay. The Ford pavilion. Okay. As you transition from the dinosaurs to the cavemen to the future, you went through a speed tunnel in the, in your Ford, in your Ford convertible. And that speed tunnel concept and actually the effect of high speed, he did develop that. So what you're talking about was probably uh, that came later. out of uh, that work that he developed for the World's Fair. Interesting. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, Ethan, I want to throw this one to you. Um, uh, how, how often are audio animatronics repurposed? Because I'm imagining that the uh, the under the underlying robotic uh, armature is something that can just re be reprogrammed and reskinned. Uh, isn't that true? Yeah, it does. It does happen. In fact, one of the um, one of my favorite uh, reuses of animatronics goes back to one of the opening day shows, which is uh, from Mickey Mouse Review. And Mickey Mouse Review, uh, you knew Bill, Bill Justice. I was you know yeah. pretty close to Bill Justice. I met him when I first started at WDI. And um, he, you know, was the art director and designer of the Mickey Mouse Review, uh, which was this great big, um, you know, audio animatronic extravaganza that opened with Walt Disney World. It was shipped to Tokyo Disneyland in the 19, like 1980, I guess. Uh, and they basically took those figures and all the shows just like projectors, everything, moved that to Japan, and it ran there until 2009, I believe, and I was at one of the last performances because we were going to put PhilharMagic in there, and um, we, we actually went through and we put a list together of, you know, which figure should we save, and at the time, uh, George Scribner and uh, um, some folks were working on the Grand Fiesta Tour, for yeah. um you were probably working on that too, oh i i did i uh, that was the uh, the the redo of the uh the show inside the mexican pavilion at epcot yeah i worked on that with george <laughs> yeah so you know i knew that show was going on and it's like there was a, a few sets of the three caballero figures that bill justice had designed for that attraction so uh, we put that on our salvage list you know they were sent back to wdi with a couple other key figures like the mickey and the mini figures and um, yeah, so they, they were in storage for a while. They were sent to Florida. And then uh, a few people in the uh, SQS group at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering in Florida ended up taking those three caballeros from Mickey Mouse Review and installed them into um, the uh, Grand Fiesta Tour. So um, those figures are, you know, I think probably some of the longest running figures other than Country Bear. 
Yeah, you know, and I, I have to comment here because I, I think like Walt was a master back in the day of repurposing stuff. You know, he repurposed animation and all kinds of things for the Disneyland television shows. And uh, and I and I think it, it, it's a tribute to everybody that works at the company when they're when they can really sort of, you know, visualize, wow, let's take this that we already have and we can reuse it for this thing over here. And you you know, you reskin it, repaint it, whatever it is. And, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's just an efficient way of working at least back in the day. Oh, absolutely. You know? so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, for a long time, most audiomatronics that were built were humanoid. So you had like the A1 uh, figures, which that's like Pirates of the Caribbean, like, style figure then there was the a100 figures which were uh like the humanoid figures that were done for like great movie ride and things like that and those figures um you know it's like it was a it was almost like a, it was like a kit of parts so the guys working at uh mapo or tahunga like who would build those figures they would say oh i need this piece and this piece it was almost like putting together like ikea furniture but, <laughs> and then we got into doing more you know caricatured characters like uh you know we would do a Mike Wazowski or a Sully or, um, you know, one of the dwarfs. And it's like, you cannot use that standardized, you know, bits and pieces from a humanoid figure on a caricature, like, you know, happy. Right. Wasn't it Roger Brogy who really did the standardization in, in the seventies through Mapo? Like they had a set, a list of parts that, you know, this is, this you're going to use for every pirate if you do, or every humanoid one. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. And it's like when I started at Tahunga, uh, which was the manufacturing um, facility uh, for Walt Disney Imagineering, there was a whole wall that had all the standard parts. And it's like, here's a standard pelvis. Here's a standard elbow. And it was all out there for all the guys on the shop floor who were building things to just like, you know, pick things off. I mean, even uh, when, you know, Sinbad, which was the first attraction I worked on, and I know you did a lot of design work on that, Chris. I mean, there was a standard body that was developed and then it was like you know we took you know Mary Nikolai's drawings your drawings and you know they would just put them together based on you know the standardized parts makes sense and you know, it's I don't know if this is true or not but I remember Wayne Jackson told me when I was bugging him about the hat box the original hat box ghost and he said he said oh we, we very likely just stripped it for parts when we stopped using it wow that, that, that's really something else. Hey, um, you know, I just want to ask the, the, the sort of crazy question, if you will, but you know, uh, when you're dealing with audio animatronics and any of you guys can jump in here, um, with the audio animatronics, when you say a one, was that the earliest, the basic figure that we, like you said, used for pirates that has sort of a limited amount of movement, uh, all the way up to the, the more complex ones, uh, that have uh, more lifelike movement, uh, and and how do how do they rate those? I, th- I think A one was just like the first one that was done, and yeah. um, I think like like A1, the Lincoln figure back in uh, yeah sixty four yeah for the World's yeah. Fair yeah. yeah. So I mean that was definitely an A one figure, and I think A one was the standard qual- uh, classification for uh, all humanoid animatronics until. I want to say uh, the great movie ride in 1989. Um, and that's when the A100 came out. And I think they're up to A1000. So if you were to go on Rise of the Resistance, the Kylo Ren's, the um, uh, 
you know, all those different characters. And, and those have much smoother movement now, right? Well, they're all uh, electrical, like they're all electric figures. Yeah. And I, you know, hydraulics, you know, you get a lot of um, power, like in a small little actuator. So like our dwarfs, Dave, a lot of those were hydraulic for packaging. Yeah. Um, but you get a lot, you know, as an animator, you get a lot uh, crisper motion out of that. On a electric figure, you have to have a much bigger motor to get the same amount of force uh, and stuff, but it's more repeatable. So I know when I animated Mr. Potato Head for, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood Studios and, um, you know, California Adventure, you know, we had that ear gag where he's like pulling off his ear. And I, you know, I remember doing tests and like, can we make this repeatable? And with hydraulics, depending on the temperature, things yeah. react differently. Yeah. And I remember baby, it's like, can we make this electric? Can we make this electric? So now everything is electric. So like, you know, I think all the else's and stuff that were built for the frozen attraction we worked on early Dave, those are all electric, I believe. Yeah. And every, yeah. everything since then is electric. Well, the, the dwar the dwarves are, are interesting because we, we animated the faces, uh, uh, digitally, uh, and they're projected into the, uh, into the robotic figures. That was a really fun project. I, I'm just sort of flashing back on it. I'm digressing though, because, uh, Chris looks, <laughs> Chris, no. I, I, I want I want you to jump in and talk a little bit more about, uh, some of the Mark Davis stories. Sure. Well, it, it, interesting. Taking it back to Claude Coates related, uh, he worked on the, the transportation pavilion, which turns into the world of motion ride. And it's really interesting because for me, um, that was something doing the Mark Davis book, just like Alan doing the book about his dad. There's a lot I learned that I didn't know about. And I knew that Mark had worked on it some, but I didn't know the, the details and the nitty gritty. So I never asked him about it when he was alive. And I wish there were so many things I wish I could have asked him project. But, um, but yeah, Mark, Mark had quit wed and was working as a contractor and they asked him to develop some gags and ideas for the world of motion, uh, attraction. Um, but prior to that, Claude Coates had his own totally different version of it that again, was very set and projected material, uh, defined. And I haven't seen, I, I've got a picture of the model of it, Alan, but I haven't seen a lot of work on, on that, but it was very different. I don't, I'm assuming Dick Irvine made these calls, but they brought Mark in and then it turned into a very Mark Davisy show very quickly. And then they brought Ward Kimball in. So as I understand it, I mean, I know from Mark's perspective, he was not happy with a lot of the decisions and the, and the final staging based on his gags. Ward took it over as what we would call the creative director today and took it to the field. But then your dad was working on it too. And I know there was a lot of, of difficult back and forth in that, right? Yes. There, there was some uh, tension between dad and Ward. It was Marty Sklar that brought, uh, that brought Ward onto okay. that project. Okay. And he admitted in an interview that Dave and I did for the book, yeah. he said, I should never have put Claude and Ward together. <laughs> because, there's there's you know, your rivalry. Yeah, yeah there's and, the rivalry. Mark and Claude could work it out. But, you know, Ward was a great guy. One of the one, nine old men, and I knew Ward and went to his steam ups at his house and the whole thing. But mm -hmm. he was... He was a wild and crazy guy and dad was a little more low key and their, their sensibilities were totally different. And I think my father was a little bit upset because he had to del delivered to General Motors what they wanted. They said, mm. this is what we want for Epcot, fine. Mm. And 
it was Marty, I think, who said, I think we need a little more humor in this. Mm. Uh, you know, Claude wasn't stuffy, but he, yeah. you know, and they said, which is true, let's bring Mark Davis in on this and, and, and have him add some, you know, some life and humor to it. And then and then he have Ward put it all up. <laughs> and then they brought Ward Kimball in, and things really went wild and crazy. Yeah. So yeah, you know, that, that transportation pavilion, which became a world of motion, just went through so many changes between Claude and Mark and yeah. Ward. So Tad, Tad Stone worked on that too and told me Tad Stone. stories yeah. about Tad working Stone's, with Ward yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, by by the way, you mentioned um uh you mentioned Marty Scalar. Um Alan and I I think did the last interview with Marty before he had passed away. Oh. Uh, and he invited he invited us up to his home in the Hollywood Hills, and we we had just the most lovely time. And it, and what was amazing was work walking into his home office. This is after he retired from Disney. Mm-hmm. Walking into his home office was like walking into his office at Imagineering. <laughs> it was just filled with stuff and stacked against the wall. It was like it was like they transported his WDI office to mm-hmm. his home. It was it was that crazy. Mm. So anyway, nice. uh, Al, uh, Al John, yes. uh, do do you have some questions? You want to do a, like a lightning round? Type I think of, it's time uh, for a lightning yeah. round, and I wish I had my sound queued up, but I don't. So well, let's just pretend <laughs> we have a lightning round. Lightning and, round. And, wow, yeah, wow, wow. yeah. We'll put that in post. <laughs> we'll put it in post. So because it is the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort, we have to ask the the standard questions, right? So let's go around. And Dave, feel free to chime in as well. But we'll first start with Christopher. Christopher, what is your favorite attraction at the Walt Disney World Resort? Well, again, bearing in mind that I missed it completely because I was way too late getting out there. If, if I could go back in time, I definitely would want to ride Horizons. Yeah. Horizons just kind of was this, this perfect World's Fair, you know, heyday of, of wed and Imagineering d- designed show. And it's just, it, and it's also just, it feels very 80s to me. So 80s is my, you know, teenage year. I'm down with it. Yeah. So I, I just, I really wish I could go back in time, experience that. I wish I could go back to really, you know, early 80s and see Epcot as it was in those first few years. Oh, I'm with you 100%. Ethan? You know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, original Epcot. And, but I do think my favorite attraction has to be Kilimanjaro Safari because that is, and I really like the original version with the, uh, the, the, with the music and the warden and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. That's my favorite version because you'd, you'd, you'd hear that song come up on the radio and then you'd see the elephants and, you know, it's not like it was like programmed or anything, but you would always see some really cool animal in a natural environment and they'd be moving to the music kind of. And and each time you went on it, it was different. And so I think, you know, Joe Brody and that, that whole team really outdid themselves on, on that. And, you know, it's like when you read the history books, like Walt wanted, you know, real animals in the Jungle Cruise. So I think, the, you know. Kilimanjaro Safari totally wins in my book. Come in, symbol one. Come in, symbol one. <laughs> We're looking for big red. Uh, I know, right? I mean, it's the best. All right, Alan, how about yourself? Well, going back 50 years to the original park, I have two favorites that I think uh, one was a dad-inspired and one was a Mark-inspired. And I, I did the show lighting with Yale Gracie on both of them, but, but Martin, too. 
the, the Hall of Presidents was such an inspiring, flag-waving, wonderful kind of an experience. When those clouds turned into the flag, it sounds kind of corny, but it was really, really something to see. It was a great light show and very impressive. The other theater show was Country Bear Jamboree, yeah. right? Yeah. The Country Bears that Mark had created and that Waithel Rogers made come to life as audio animatronics. Uh, that show was so much fun with the talking uh, uh, heads hanging on the wall, the moose and, and the, the elk talking to you and Mark's incredible figures and Big Al. And uh, one of the figures had a squirrel that popped out of his uh, coonskin cap yeah. with a little voice. That was my voice. What? So, you're Sammy? <laughs> what? Oh my God! Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait! This is voiceover in that show. This is I never knew that. We never knew. Wait, wait, that show was so much fun. You just you blew everyone's mind, Alan. You just blew everyone's <laughs> mind with that. Uh, you can't we, just casually mention that, like, like that's a thing that everyone knows. That's amazing. I mean, we have a reveal of a brand new scratch track song, and then we've got the reveal of Alan doing the voice. I mean. My head is totally exploding right now. I can't even fathom. Uh, yeah, because also my nickname, Big Al. So there you go. It works out just fine. Really? It just works out just fine. I love the country bears. Uh, Dave, how about yourself? Going back in time here. Uh, a, fa a favorite attraction? Yes. Uh, boy, uh, I'd probably, uh, gosh, uh, I'd probably have to say, um, God, there's so many of them. But I, I'd have to agree with Ethan uh, going to the Animal Kingdom and doing the K Kilimanjaro yeah. uh, tour. And, and the reason why that's a favorite for me was anytime I was down in Walt Disney World with Roy E. Disney, um, he loved that park. I mean, he's largely responsible for that park being built. Uh, but the, the fact is, is that anytime he was in Orlando, if I was with him, we went to the animal kingdom and sometimes we'd get like a, we'd get in a van with a, with a, a cast member who would take us around, uh, you know, the backstage area um, without being on a ride vehicle, you know, those big buses that they have people go out on. But I mean, that is, is such an incredible attraction. But the other thing too, I think people don't realize the behind the scenes that goes on at the animal kingdom, because there, there's a whole squadron of uh, veterinarians and uh, animal keepers and stuff. And they, they really take great care of those animals. And I had the privilege of being in uh, one of the veterinary buildings uh, during a uh, routine annual exam of a cheetah. Wow, yeah. And then I was standing next to a silverback gorilla that was having a tooth extracted. Uh, and, wow. I, and I have these, these just incredible stories. Someday, Al John, we'll, we'll talk further about them. Oh, yeah, we have to. Some of, <laughs> some of these incredible stories of being backstage with Roy yeah. and the access being with a Disney gives you. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, so I'm, I'm with Ethan, Kilimanjaro Tour. You nice. know, it's just fantastic. All right, last question, gentlemen. We'll go round robin again. If you had to choose between these Disney snacks, which one are you going to take on your walk around any one of the Disney parks? Is it going to be the Dole Whip? Is it going to be the Churro, the Mickey Premium Ice Cream Bar, 
or the turkey leg. We'll start first with Ethan. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know what? I think it would have to be Dole Whip. I mean, like in quarantine, it's like I figured out how to make Dole Whip at home. And and I know it's the churros that they use at the park. So I can make all that stuff at home right now, but I cannot wait to get back to the park. And, and actually have every single one of them ones that you just listed off, but Dole Whip. Absolutely. There, there you go. We're going. We're all going. All right, Alan, yourself? Oh, I'm trying to think. I guess uh, um, if Tony Baxter was still scooping ice cream at Carnation Gardens, I guess an ice cream cone at Carnation was nice. what I would look forward to at Disneyland. <laughs> I, I like that. That's cool. All right, Chris? Got to go with Ethan because I, I love the Enchanted Tiki Room and Dole Whip is like part of the Enchanted Tiki Room. So, yeah, I got to I gotta go with my man, Mr. Reed, on that. 100%. And you have to do the the pre-show at Disneyland because of all the dole surfing commercials and all that. Yep. That's like the yep. best, right? Yep. Dave, yep. your favorite snack. I, you know, I'm going to go with Ethan and Chris and say dole whip. Partly because I, I've gone to the birthplace of dole whip over in Hawaii Ooh. at the dole plantation uh, on Oahu. Uh, so, you know, there, there's nothing better than a dole whip uh, on a hot day i have to say no doubt i'm with you 100 clean sweep dole whip wins and that my <laughs> friends is our lightning round thank you so much wow thank you for that al john that was fantastic yes, absolutely uh, I, I i think we got to go for uh for last thoughts on walt disney world turning 50 and uh, i i want to start with alan La last thoughts because you were there before it even opened yes i was well last thoughts um it was <sighs> a creative high point in my life to be given that opportunity as a young, a young fellow to be able to be part of that. So uh, it's just uh, probably the most meaningful creative experience until I did with Dave Bostard, the book on my father's career. <laughs> Thank you for that, Alan. Uh, Chris, uh, you know, final thoughts on Walt Disney World, World turning 50. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to get my brain around cause I'm 51. And, uh, so, but that, it, it's, it's amazing. And it, what, what really blows my mind is the scale of everything down there and, and how big it is. And then, you know, so some of the, the new things they're doing, I don't love as much as the old stuff, but some of the, like, I just saw recently, like all the LEDs they put on the outside of spaceship earth. It's gorgeous. Absolutely mm -hmm. gorgeous. I think that's really, really cool. So obviously the whole property is going to continue to grow, but it's amazing when you think how it just started with a few small resorts and the Magic Kingdom Park in 71 and what it is today. It, re, it, it you know, in the sense of scale and that it's, it's almost like its own city. I think, you know, that that's something, even though the, the Walt's original version of Epcot is probably not attainable the way he designed it. Right. So the idea that it is this huge property, it's basically its own city. I mean, you know, Reedy Creek, right? I mean, like, you know, it's 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 its, its own whole thing. That's yeah. pretty dang impressive for 50 years, going from dirt to that. Yeah, yeah. Ethan? I just, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that it's, uh, you know, grown so much. I mean, when, you know, when it, my first trip there, 1986, you had, you know, what's downtown Disney now, and the two resorts and, you know, Fort Wilderness. That was, that was about it. It was still huge. But, you know, when you think about all the stuff that Michael Eisner and, you know, that, uh, you know, that leadership generation like put into Walt Disney World, how much it grew. I mean, opening the animation studio there. I mean, yeah. uh, 
so much has, you know, so much Disney history has taken place on that property and will continue to take place on that property. And, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, you know, what's going to happen, you know, 50 years from now, like for the hundredth anniversary, I, I plan on being there. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's amazing because, you know, Walt, Walt always said Disneyland was, you know, never going to be finished. It was always going to be changing and evolving and, you know, new things being added and old things going away. And, and it's very much true for Walt Disney World or any of the parks, really. It, it, there's there's always a freshness because if you if you even don't go down to Walt Disney World for a year or two, when you do go back, uh, there's things have changed. You know, uh, from from the simple to the major, uh, there there's always stuff that's different and new. And I think that's what's so exciting about it all. So with that, I want to thank uh, Alan, Chris and Ethan for joining us for this Walt Disney World celebration as our studio audience goes wild. Uh, and I, uh, uh, Alan, uh, we're, we're hopeful to see you again soon. Uh, have you back on Chris. Uh, I want to have you back uh, to talk all about Mark Davis and your two volume book. Uh, and Ethan, you've been on the show before and we look forward to having you back again. Uh, in the future. So thank you gentlemen for being here uh, for our celebration and also for our Skull Rock podcast one year anniversary show. Congratulations, Congratulations. you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's a great show. Your attention please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Oh man. My head just exploded, Dave. That was uh, that was just really terrific, and, and you know it's so great to hear some of those behind the scenes stories, especially that bombshell from uh, Alan Coates doing the voice of Sammy the Squirrel. That's a, I mean, that's yeah. amazing. Uncredited for all these years, and now yeah. Disney fans, we know the truth. So we need to put that into the Disney Wiki. We need to put that in the Disney voiceovers. We need to do that because that was just nowhere else could you get yeah. this kind of radio gold, Dave? Radio gold, right, right here on the Skull Rock <laughs> Podcast, <laughs> delivering bombshells every week, and we um, and like you know these kind of things we only would get glimpses of at a D23 if you're lucky, right? Yeah. But you yeah. kind of get this every single week. And um, Dave, I'm just so happy. It's been a year of doing this show and it's just been a real honor and privilege just to help produce a show with you every single week and to have your friends on and to talk about this stuff because we geek out about this all the time. And uh, to know that, Everyone associated uh, with you who worked with you, who worked as an Imagineer in the parks and all the different cast members around the world, um, they love Disney and they love to just, uh, you know, talk about it as if they were still fans. And they are. They're just like us. We're all fans. Yeah, we really are. And and I have to tell you, Al, John, this show would not exist if it wasn't for you. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, it's just been a, a pure honor uh, to to be able to co-host this show with you for the past year and uh, into the future, uh, yeah. because this is just the beginning. I think we're we're just having a ball here. And and apparently from all the notes we're getting from people, people are enjoying it. Absolutely. Know? Yeah, we're just getting started, gang. And so thank you so much for 
of a year plus of of just support and of your continued support of our program. Uh, we've got some great people that are contributors to us. We've got great communities and, and um, Dave, I, I think I, I thought I had opened this window, but I just want to let you know that all 12,500 of you, it's a really, really cool, cool thing to be doing this um, for you all every single week. Um, you know, we've got some great numbers and it's all because of, you know, you guys. It's all because of our radio partners. It's all because of, of you that make it happen. So thank you it, so much. It, it really is. And, 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 you know, that feedback we get from people is really juice for us. You know, it, it pumps us up uh, to keep doing the show and keep getting, getting some great guests on. So we're really looking forward to it. And who knows, maybe next year we'll be broadcasting from D23. I'd love know? that. I'd love that, you know, it would be great and it would be a lot of fun. And um, I look forward to uh, every week and I look forward to the future. Dave, here's to many more years of Skull Rock podcast. And thank you so uh, very much uh, for listening, everyone. We really do appreciate it. And And more coming up next week. Can you believe it? It's Halloween time, Dave. It's Halloween time, and you've got some other friends coming on board to talk. Yeah, and and by the way, I want to make sure that everybody realizes last week we had Bob Kurtz on part one, and I inadvertently said, hey, we're going to have part two this week. Well, we're going to actually have part two in the next week uh, because we want you to hear the rest of the Bob Kurtz uh, interview. You got it. that, That is great. And once again, wow, Bob, what an energy. He is just an energetic guy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So anyway, gang, once again, if you love Disney and pop culture and you made it to the end of the show, uh, especially the newcomers, thank you so much for listening. And for everyone else, please don't forget to give us a like on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can follow Dave and myself on LinkedIn as well as Facebook. Uh, Dave Bosser, Al John Go. you can follow us. You can also send us those emails. We're quite fond of the listener feedback. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. And we'd also like to thank our syndication partners there, uh, Sorcerer Radio. We do appreciate it. Um, just a quick plug. We're doing a 50th anniversary roundtable with a lot of the DJs from around the United States. Uh, so be on the lookout for that at SRSounds.com. And my uh, sister podcast as well, The Disney List and uh, Dining at Disney. Dave, and we can't wait to have you back on the show to talk more about some of your books. So well, I, I love talking about food, too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Like Dole Whips. <laughs> there you go. All right, Dave, you got the final word here. Well, like, as always, uh, peace and love to everybody. Go out and have a fantastic week ahead. And we look forward to having you back right here at the Skull Rock Podcast. vacation jamboree and the christmas show were you around did you do the voice for uh that version too no the other voices i did with uh uh the, the platform and the vehicle are moving at the same speed step out to the right please i did that exit <laughs> dialogue and, and entry dialogue for uh it's just, uh if you had wings oh wow I just did that one character. <laughs> That's a, I, I'll have to have you uh, sign my uh, Country Bear Jamboree, uh, you know, record album. Okay. Right? That is awesome. <laughs> Uncredited. Yeah. Uncredited. Uh, yeah. Well, not anymore. We're going to, we're going to spread the word about this.
Yeah. I'll That's like, I guess like how casually, how casually you drop that, Alan. Like, oh yeah. I just saw, I just saw Bigfoot and Elvis walk out my <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's awesome, right, guys. guys. This is America. It's big and it's grand. This is America. This is our land. Small towns and big towns where skyscrapers soar. Airlines and steamships and truckers by the score. Railroads and steel mills and traffic on the road. Highways and riverboats and cotton by the load. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is San Francisco, Santa Fe, San Antonio, and San Jose. All aboard! Doctor, lawyer, and Indian chief. Fireman, inventor, and freedom of belief. Jazz band, drugstores, and a candidate's speech. Liberated misses on bikinis on the beach. Whoa, this is America. It's big and it's grand. This is America. This is our land. America is George Washington, Booker T. Washington, Washington Irving, and Washington, D.C. Popcorn, peanuts, pie a la mode. Soda pop, potato chips, hot dogs by the load Hamburgers and french fries, chicken in the pan Watermelon, iced tea, diet if you can This is America, it's big and it's grand This is America, this is our land America is homemade bread and strawberry jam Automobiles and an uncle named Sam Artists and writers in the three-act play Cohan and O'Neill and the lights of old Broadway Television, radio, and movies by the mile Vaudeville and burlesque had them rolling in the aisle This is America, it's big and it's grand This is America, this is our land America is prime time, commercials and program rating Comedy, drama, and villain hating. Mountains and rivers across the Great Divide. Deserts and rattlesnakes, adventures never died. Cowboys and Indians are in the movies now. The gunfighter's finished, cause now he milks the cow. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is Herbert Hoover or Hubert Heaver, Hoover Dam and the vacuum cleaner. Royal Series baseball and a big Bronx chair. Hiss and booty umpire and have a can of beer. Bone crutching football and a marching band. Follow it with basketball for trills around the land. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. He's out! He's safe! It's a touchdown! No, he was offside! No! Yeah! Nah! Okay, let's see the instant replay. Saw that lumber and hit that nail. Put them all together, it's another house for sale. Skylines rise in a brand new town. First we build them up, then wreckers tear them down. 
America is blue-collar workers and a Labor Day parade, a picnic in the park and a barrel of lemonade. Clothing off the rack in everybody's size. Fashion changes every year, here comes a big surprise. Suede leisure jacket and a drip dry shirt. As soon as we get used to it, they change the length of skate. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is blue jeans, evening gowns and cowboy boots, hula skirts, Stetson hats and two pants swords. Everything we make is on assembly line. Automated, riveted, and with a glossy shine. It's free enterprise for every dollar's worth. Production fills the shelves we sell around the earth. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is automobiles and a 40-hour week. It's leisure time and a trip to Pikes Peak. Bread basket, wheat fields, miles and miles of corn. Orchards and orange groves to harvest every morn. The farmer works till sunsets in the west. Meat and potatoes and gravy on the vest shucks, buddy. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This here's America, this is our land. America is plow that field and plant those potatoes. Let's have a barn dance and pick the tomatoes. Reading and writing in the old schoolroom, grammar school to college, it's an education boom. Prep schools and trade schools, knowledge never dies. It takes a lot of knowing to end up very wise. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is matriculate, graduate, don't procrastinate. Get that education before you get the gate. Benjamin Franklin and the 4th of July. Firecrackers and Cracker Jacks and Loganberry Pie. Thanksgiving, Halloween and pumpkins on the vine. Santa Claus and candy cane and elderberry wine. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is the Liberty Bell and Freedom's Call, Patrick Henry and Independence Hall. Thomas Jefferson and rights of the free, Ulysses as friend and Robert E. Lee. Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King and freedom of the press. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. America is living. America is change. America is hope for a better kind of world. This is America, it's big and it's grand. This is America, this is our land. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. 
give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves? Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.